I want to square a circle. I've been thinking a lot about private equity as we bemoan the roll-ups that happen on the software side. Entrepreneurs are looking for places to sell their businesses. So I talked to an expert who's written a book. Brendan Ballou joins me, the author of Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America, on this bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Brennan, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've got a book out, which I'm going to get to in a, in a bit, but I actually want to start by getting a little bit of an understanding of kind of how you got interested in looking at private equity. Yeah, and I should start off by saying, of course, I'm speaking in a purely personal capacity and not necessarily on behalf of the government. <laughs> so, you know, you you live in the D.C. area, so you know, you know how us lawyers have to talk. Um, of course. So <laughs> uh, I got interested in this because I worked in the antitrust division of the Justice Department, and when one company needs to buy another – if it's big enough, they have to file some forms with DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission. And this was in 2020, and I was looking at these forms that were coming in, and they were all, all these companies were getting bought by firms that I had never heard of, you know, Blackstone and Carlisle, KKR, and so forth. I had never heard of these institutions. And so I started looking into them, and it seemed like they were basically taking over the entire world. Um, and that got me interested in understanding who these firms are, uh, what private equity is and, you know, how it's changing America. Now, I want to start with a premise and I want to make sure that I, I understand stuff because I'm coming at it from a bit of like having been through it as an entrepreneur and and had sold my business as well as being involved in the sale of some software companies that were involved in private equity. And as, as I've been watching this space from my side, I often talk about the idea of the PE playbook, the idea of you're combining a bunch of businesses, you try and squeeze out the inefficiency, which often involves not investing in R&D because the R&D is expensive uh, and you buy up things to grow revenue and then you trade it around and the idea is to sell it again uh, how much am I, how much have i got right on the basic premise there and what am i missing well i think playbook is a great word for it because private equity firms really often do have a series of plays that they want to execute on the companies that they buy and i think you hit on some of them already so just to set a baseline here you know what do private equity firms do um, they take some of their own money, some some investor money, a lot of borrowed money, and then try to buy a company up, you know, make financial and operational changes, and then sell it for a profit a few years later. Very straightforward. But I think what was implicit in your question is, you know, it seems like private equity firms have a series of tactics that they try to execute on these businesses. And the problem that you've got is private equity firms really try to sell their companies generally within three, five, maybe seven years. And if you're looking at trying to make a profit on a business in three years, 
chances are you are not going to invest a lot in research and development. You're not going to invest a lot in, you know, expanding your workforce or expanding your production or even in making your customers happy. Um, often instead, what you're trying to do is cut as many costs as you can, you know, so that you can then flip it just a few years later and say, hey, you know, I've reduced expenses. This company is worth more. Okay. Now, this is where we get into some of the bits where I'm trying to square the circle and I can't quite get to figuring out what's going on. So when I look, when I look at our space, it feels like there's a lot of different players in it. And there's some big players in the, in the space, right? There's companies like uh, Insight Partners, Tama Bravo, they, like get headlines that are really well known. And they tend to be working on the software side of things. And they're doing it where they look and say like, hey, there's software companies. I can roll them up. I can execute this plan and they can work with it. But I'm also aware of about 100 companies that are doing it on the services side too. And these are funded companies, right? So these funded private equity firms that are coming in and they're buying up the services companies and they keep snatching up small entrepreneurial businesses and rolling that up too. And when I talk to people that I respect and know that have run these businesses, they're smart guys. They've run it, run an ethical, good business for a long time. And they tell me, yeah, these are companies that are investing in me and I'm sticking with them. And I'm really struggling to sort of square the circle of saying, well, they're all private equity. How do I tell the difference in a way of the ones that are kind of strip mining versus ones that are potentially investing for the future? You've been looking at this. What's, what's your take on what's going on? I, it's a great question. Um, I always say that the private equity business model has three basic problems. You know, one we've already mentioned, which is they tend to buy and hold companies just for a few years. Um, you know, so that encourages sort of short term thinking. Another is that they tend to put a lot of debt on the companies in order to buy them, and they tend to extract a lot of fees, things like, that are called like transaction fees, management fees, dividend recapitalizations, and so forth. And then the third is that private equity firms tend to be very good at insulating themselves from liability for the consequences of their actions. So if something goes wrong in one of their portfolio companies, generally the private equity firm isn't held responsible. Those are my three basic concerns. But I always say that they're more like, you know, dials than they are switches, you know. Um, and, you know, different private equity firms take different perspectives. Some invest for a very short period of time and, work, you know, put on a lot of debt on the company. Other firms really take a long-term perspective, you know, rely on less debt, extract fewer fees. Maybe you're willing to take on more legal responsibility for their actions. So, you know, I would say if you're if you're in a business that's contemplating a sale to private equity, I would be asking, you know, how far dialed up are those knobs? You know, and is this going to be a business that's really thinking about your future or is it something that's trying to make a profit in just a few years? Okay. Now that's because you've almost led into like the entrepreneur question. So so I'm a you know, I'm an operator of of one of these businesses and and obviously you build a business as an entrepreneur to be an asset and you want it to grow in value in time. And there are two ways you can do this, right? It becomes a machine <laughs> that cranks out some money for, for you and your shareholders at the, at the small level. But at some point you may want to take the value of that thing and walk away from it, sell it the same way we would sell a house or we would sell a, you know, I don't want to say car because those devalue, but, but, but you got what I'm saying is just, I take these things. I don't want to do it. If I'm an entrepreneur and I'm approached by, by these, by private equity in the broad sense, 
is it the calculation of the knobs in a way that that sort of tells me what they're doing? What what questions would you be asking or telling entrepreneurs to ask? God, I, I keep saying that it's a great question, but it is a great question because I think all, you know some people sell their businesses, you know, or they they're an executive at a business. Um, often, you know, this happens at you know Fortune five hundred or publicly traded companies, and you know they didn't grow up with the place. You know, they take a very short term perspective, and the goal is to you know. Not on, un, not, not unreasonably, try to make as much money as possible, and so you know, often those deals result in in sales that make a lot of money for the executive, but you know, doesn't help the company in the long run. Other people, founders especially, you know, really the company is a part of who they are, you know, and even if they're trying to you know retire or leave the business, like they want the thing to succeed for the long term. I imagine that's what a lot of your listeners are like. I would be thinking, I would be asking the private equity firms about what is their exit model. You know, are they planning to be in this business for three years, for five years, for seven years, you know, or longer? You know, a lot of, you know, the best private equity firms really have a buy and hold sort of model. Um, And then, you know, they may say one thing, but ask them, when are they expected to make returns for their, what are called limited partners, their investors, you know? So they may say, yeah, we're in it for the long term, but hey, we've got to get a payout on this fund in the next four years or something like that, suggests that they might have to take a a really short-term perspective. The other thing I, I, you know, not to go on too long here, but I think the other thing to be thinking about if you're a founder is how is this acquisition going to happen? Um, are they going to primarily, you know, pay cash to to buy the business, or is the expectation that the business that you're selling is going to take on a lot of debt to finance the acquisition, which is sort of the the legal magic trick of a lot of private equity deals? And you know, if you if you care about the business, you know that you can only place so much debt on the business before it starts to be a drag. You know, before you know you're paying money on the interest rather than hiring new employees rather than, you know, building a new, you know, office or investing in R&D. So think about how the acquisition is structured. And then finally, think about, you know, is is the firm going to take on legal responsibility for their actions? So I think those are the questions they should be asking. And I think responsible entrepreneurs do. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now, you've been looking in the book, you look at a couple of fields that feel very similar, particularly healthcare, uh, feels very parallel mm. to what I'm seeing in the services business. You've got a lot of these small, small doctors, dermatologists, dentists, uh, long-term health facilities. Like the, the, the parallels from the book seem really interesting. Were there certain kind of lessons from, the, from those interactions that you can take away and, and think might be relevant here? Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is, you know, private equity firms often engage in a sort of roll-up strategy. You know, the idea that we're going to buy, you know, sort of a flagship business, and then we're going to buy a bunch of, you know, bunch of competitors. The the sort of stated reason is, well, it increases efficiencies. You know, you, you, you can consolidate back office billing, you know, you can buy from the same suppliers and so forth. It reduces costs, incre- you know, allows us to, to run a more efficient business. The challenge that you've got is it's often also a way to exert market power over consumers, you know, and, you know, this is happening a lot in, um, as you said, in the healthcare industry, where anecdotally, you've got stories of 
private equity firms buying up anesthesiology practices or dermatology practices and so forth, and either cutting the quality of care or increasing the prices. There's a great report by Peter Wariski in the Washington Post on exactly the subject a few weeks ago. So, you know, if you're think if you're in one of these businesses and you care about, you know, your consumers, you should be thinking about is this a roll-up strategy that's, you know, meant to, you know, deliver efficiencies or is it a strategy that's meant to, you know, really just kind of game customers? Okay, now you brought up the customers, which is great transition for me and my sort of next question. One of the things that we've been seeing a lot here is as I alluded to it in my PE playbook, right, is is that these companies particularly on the software side or buying up uh, related businesses, right? They, they, they have, they're in a particular core piece. They're, they see a, what I might even term as a feature they didn't build. They want to go buy that smaller company. They roll it up. Looks really good from a revenue perspective. They can cross sell, but it ends up ultimately in some cases kind of squishing the R and D side and the customers, particularly my, these entrepreneurial MSPs that we've been talking about are the consumers, right? They're consuming this technology that's been growing with them in their business. Then all of a sudden it changes. How, how do they, what are you advising that their options are particularly because in a way that the, the markets are getting crushed, right? They're buying up the competition. They're rolling in. There are only so many players. What do you recommend they do? do. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the challenge that I think individual competitors have is is these are sort of big structural problems that are going on, you know. Um in some sense, you know, I I approach this from from the perspective as a lawyer, you know, the the first thing that I'd be thinking about is, you know, are some of these deals violating the law? You know, let me get it really in the weeds and then I'll get a little bit more abstract. Um, you know, in 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 we were talking about healthcare, you know, when we were talking about buying up anesthesiology practices and, you know, emergency um, staffing facilities and so forth. In extreme cases, those may violate state corporate practice of medicine laws. And in fact, doctors are now suing under those statutes saying that these acquisitions are really harming the practice of medicine. I can't get too in the details here because it sort of touches on my job, but I, I would say, you know, it in their extreme form, some of these roll-ups may violate the antitrust laws. You know, Section 7 of the Clayton Act says that, you know, a company can't acquire stock that the result of which may be to substantially lessen competition. If this is a roll-up strategy that, you know, is reducing choice for consumers, that's increasing costs for, you know, your listeners and reducing, you know, sort of the quality of services, those are the sorts of harms that the antitrust laws are are meant to or were drafted to protect against. Okay, now I'm not a lawyer, so I need a little bit of help here to be able to to look at these because oftentimes, you know, for me as a technologist, I'll look at what's happening and say, okay, one plus one is three. Like I get the idea that this that a particularly large software company they haven't built this extra module out or functionality out. And I go, yeah, it makes perfect sense for me that they would buy this and roll it up. Right. They have, they then say like, I get that kind of, what are the criteria that I should be looking for as a non-lawyer to sort of say like, these are the rules of the game that are fair. And these are the rules of the game that, that cross the line. It's, it's a, it's tough because it's a kind of question that lawyers and judges are debating sort of amongst themselves. I guess that's kind of the nature of antitrust laws. So maybe just, um, I'll, I'll take one step back and just we'll, we can do kind of an antitrust 101 sort of thing if it's helpful for your cool. for your <laughs> listeners. 
Um, so, you know, the idea of antitrust law um, says, you know, generally acquisitions that, and I, I sort of paraphrase the key quote, may substantially lessen competition, um, may violate the law um, and can be enjoined. So you can actually stop or unwind the acquisition. Um, you know, the harms that generally are contemplated here are increased prices, reduced quality care, or potentially harm to, to workers, you know. Um, if, you know, now the workers are going to get paid way less and all the money is going to share, you know, filter up to the executives. Um, I think if you are sort of an operator in these businesses, the things to be thinking about are, is this a horizontal acquisition where, you know, a bunch of businesses are getting bought up in the same field and the result of which is, um, you know, increases in prices. Those are the sorts of things that the antitrust laws are, are meant to stop. Um, and, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that private litigants pursue. It's also the kind of thing that, you know, state attorneys general, the FTC and the DOJ, um, you know, can sometimes act on. The one last thing to think about is there's there's a really niche law, but it might actually be really relevant to your to your listeners. It's um, Section 8 of the Clayton Act prohibits what's called uh, interlocking directorates. So if you're on the board of one company, you can't be on the board of a competing company. And what's interesting is, as alleged... Um, there have been private equity sort of minority investments in a lot of different businesses where they put on directors on these competing boards, and it's a way to potentially facilitate coordination between them. So, you know, if your listeners are looking at these acquisitions that are coming up, it may also be interesting to look at, okay, what, what do the boards of these companies look like? And is there potential sort of overlap between these competitors? Okay. Now, one of the things I liked about the book also was that you're kind of prescriptive at the end. You, you know, you know, just it, it doesn't end with the classic like go vote. Yeah. So it actually you, you you position a different bit of of strategies for thinking about here. But I want to put on that sort of entrepreneur slash citizen hat, right? Because at least from my perspective, I always sort of quip that the you know uh, laws and regulations are the guardrails that let us have a competitive field that we can then just go at one another on top. Like that's that's the yeah. point. As a citizen, though, I want fair rules so that I can play, particularly as a small entrepreneur. What advice would you or direction of, of kind of the prescriptive direction that you give would you say, hey, entrepreneurs that are thinking as citizens, focus here. So I, I, it's great that you're asking about that because there's a lot that needs to be done and there's a lot that can be done. You know, going back to the original problems that we were talking about, private equity firms investing for the short term, reliance on debt and fees, um, you know, and insulation from liability. There are things that sort of the, the institutions that you would think about can act on. You know, Congress could take action here. But there's a lot of other levers of power. You know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve can act on the federal level. States and localities can ban some of these abusive tactics if they want to. Private litigants can take action here, too. So there's a lot of different ways that people can be active. And I agree that the sort of like go vote or write your congressperson is often insufficient. Um, I think if people are really interested in these issues, uh, there are a number of organizations that are really um, invested in this stuff and working on it long term. So it might just be useful to just sort of get on their listserv and learn what they're doing. So I'll, I'll shout out a few. Um, uh, Americans for Financial Reform, uh, the American Economic Liberties Project, and the Private Equity Stakeholder Project are just three. They might be doing the kind of work that, that would interest your listeners. 
Gotcha. Well, Brennan, this has been super interesting to, to listen to. The book is called Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America. And I cannot recommend it enough, particularly for those of us that are, are looking at this space and I'm trying to understand where all the money is going. I'm going to sort of give the, the last kind of question there as, as I think about this. Like, what do you think about as you've been thinking about this, about the the financial incentive that makes the most sense that would sort of shift the, this dynamic. I think the the fundamental, if if I had to reduce it to one problem, it's that private equity firms get all the upside when things go well, but can walk away legally when things go badly. And it's a classic sort of principal agent problem. And it's, you know, a thing that we created in the law. If we can fix that, if we can make private equity firms responsible for their actions, I think that they can actually be made a very productive part of our financial system and our economy. We just need to get there. Well, that's a super positive note to end on. Brendan, thanks for, thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Started. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Thanks for your time and attention. Time is a finite resource, and I really value you giving me some of yours. If you like this video, you can let me know with a like of the video, and even more valuable, hitting the subscription button. My content is all free, and I use metrics like subscriptions to pay the bills, so it has real value. The content here is produced under ethics guidelines, posted at businessof.tech. If you're interested in more content like this, you can get access to content early via our Patreon at patreon.com slash mspradio. It's our give what you want model where you set the value of what you think the content is worth. If you like this podcast, you can catch it daily as the five-minute news and commentary show, The Business of Tech, available on all your favorite podcatchers with links at businessof.tech. Just hit that big blue button to subscribe. Again, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen, and I really value the interaction. If you want to say something in the comments, I do respond and watch all that, and I look forward to talking to you next time.